Well, good morning. We're going to uh, go ahead and get started. So if you would make your way in. Uh, I've got a little bit of a sinus infection or something. So if I'm blinking and coughing, just uh, forgive me for that. But let's pray and then we will uh, dive in. Father, we are grateful for your grace and mercy to us. We're grateful for an opportunity to uh, consider your word this morning, and, uh, and so I pray that you would help us to think more clearly uh, about you, uh, because your word says that uh, our lives are transformed by the renewing of our minds, and so would you help us to renew our minds, and, uh, and that we might uh, think more biblically, so that we might uh, have lives that are more uh, submitted to the lordship of your son. And so we pray that he would be glorified as we talk about these things uh, today because you're good and you do good. So we ask in Christ's name, amen. Well, this semester we have been uh, dealing with uh, apologetics and, uh, and worldview and then we're going to shift uh, towards the end of the semester into talking about particular world religions and uh, the, uh, the cults and, uh, and so forth, cults. Um, but uh, what we want to kind of do is kind of respond to some of the more consistent uh, claims of, uh, of skeptics. And so we've talked about various conspiracy theories that you might hear out there or you might read about on the internet, uh, like the idea that the Bible has been tainted over time or that the Bible has contradictions. Uh, we'll be talking as we move through the semester about whether or not certain books were left out of the Bible. Does the Bible just borrow from uh, pagan myths like uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh or the Enuma Elish or something uh, like that? But this week, what we wanna talk about is an apologetic issue, a worldview issue related to whether or not God commands people to sin or whether God commends sin in the Bible. We're not asking the question, uh, is God sovereign over evil? The answer to that is yes, God is sovereign over evil. We've already uh, dealt with that. In fact, uh, we will also be dealing with that uh, in uh, a few weeks as we talk about uh, what's called theodicy, which is the justification of God in light of the problem uh, of evil. Uh, so we've talked about that before, we'll do so again, uh, but that's not the question today. We're, we're asking the question today whether or not God actually commands people to sin. And uh, so we'll look at a few different examples, but before we look at these examples, uh, I wanna give some opening thoughts, some uh, theological nuances that I think are gonna be really important uh, for us to recognize if we're going to answer this question uh, faithfully. The first one, this is kind of related to the idea of God's sovereignty in light of evil, is that you need to understand that God can ordain that which he hates. God can ordain that which, we, which he hates. In other words, what we're doing here is we're talking about uh, the fact that God can will in one sense what he doesn't will in another sense. We call this the two wills of God. And, uh, and so theologians have, uh, have distinguished between what, what uh, is called his will of decree versus his will of command. Now that's not a helpful distinction in regards to those particular words because decree means command. And so that's not a very helpful way to distinguish what we mean by the two uh, wills of God. So we might call them his revealed moral will and his hidden sovereign will. By the way, if you think that sounds strange for there to be this idea of there being two wills in God, just think about your own experience. We all have something that's analogous to this. And so if I were to ask you the question, do you want to discipline your kids? 
you would say, well, there's a sense in which I want to, but there's another sense in which I don't want to. There's a sense in which I want uh, to uh, uh, have my kids to be trained and uh, to learn how to be obedient and submissive and so forth, but I don't just relish the idea of spanking my child. Like, I, I don't laugh maniacally as I'm doing it. Like, this gives me some sort of a, you know, masochistic uh, pleasure or something like that. Or the question, do you like to get up early? Um, well, yeah, I like to get up and read the Bible. I like to pray. I like to do these things. I like to have a bit of quiet before the chaos of working with Tim and Zach and so forth. But I don't just inherently enjoy getting out of bed. And so you see, even in your own life, there are these evidences of there being two wills. And so the same is true of God. And so we have his will of decree. Uh, again, uh, I'm not concerned that you know that particular word, but uh, his will of decree is his sovereign will. Uh, that's which, uh, that which he ordains and comes uh, to pass. And then on the other hand, you have his will of command, which is what he actually reveals, his moral will, what he commands. So God's will of command, what he reveals to us, what he commands us, never involves sin. God doesn't command sin. He never commands sin to occur, though he ordains sin according to his sovereign hidden will. So uh, let me give you a few examples of this from uh, scripture so you don't think that uh, this is just a crazy sort of idea. And so we see in scripture, God reveals to us according to his revealed moral will that he hates it when his people are oppressed. But at the same time, he ordains that they be oppressed in Egypt. So he hates that they be oppressed and yet he also ordains that they be oppressed. Or he commands uh, according to his moral revealed will, he commands Pharaoh to let his people go. But then he hardens Pharaoh's heart so that he won't obey that command. He desires all to be saved, but he only effectually elects and calls some to himself. He hates the slaughter of his son, and yet he ordains or wills it to uh, happen. So you see there is this distinction between God's will of decree and his will of uh, command, his hidden sovereign will and his revealed moral will. So God ordains sin, but he doesn't command sin. And that's an important uh, distinction. He doesn't tell Pharaoh to do evil. He doesn't tell Judas or Pilate to do evil. So God can ordain sin, but not himself be guilty of that sin. In order to understand that, we need to also understand this next point, which is that God stands behind good and evil differently. God is good, he is not evil. He uses sin, but God himself never sins. God uses evil, but he never himself does evil and he is not evil. So he stands behind good directly, but he stands behind evil indirectly. He does good but he uses evil. That's, uh, again, an important distinction uh, to make. In other words, God can use evil, but evil itself is never the actual goal. It's never the ultimate purpose. Uh, God uses evil, but it's always for good. Anytime God uses evil, uh, it's always for good, even though sometimes we don't know what that good actually is. But we see a good example of this in Genesis chapter uh, 50, verse 20. Joseph is uh, speaking here, and he says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that, uh, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are uh, today. So probably the two best examples of this, if you just want to understand this, this paradigm, this principle, uh, this pattern, that then you can apply to any area of life, 
is in regards to Joseph and, uh, and Jesus. So let's take the example of uh, Joseph. What are some evils that Joseph experiences? He's captured, yeah, he's, he's sold into slavery. What else? He's falsely accused. Somebody said something else. He's, uh, he's enslaved, he's imprisoned, all of these sorts of things. He's betrayed by his brothers. There's a number of things that we could say uh, there. So all of these evil things that he experiences. But then think about it like this. What is the good that comes about as a result of that? He saves his people, right? He uh, ultimately meets his wife and he gets kids. Uh, he uh, is led to being the number two in all of Egypt. There's a lot of good that actually comes, but the greatest good that we see and what's uh, uh, mentioned there in Genesis chapter f- uh, 50 is the idea that through all of this evil that Joseph has experienced, the uh, people of Israel survive. And, and in fact, the messianic promise survives as well, so without belittling, without denying the degree of suffering that Joseph experiences, I think he and we should say, totally worth it, right? Uh, the Messiah comes through this line, the family is saved, all of these sorts of things. And then take the example of Jesus. What, what evil does Jesus experience? Betrayal, he's betrayed, he's abandoned, what else? Yeah, he's sacrificed, he's falsely accused of blasphemy, all of these uh, evil experiences, and yet what good does that bring about? Salvation, resurrection, justification, any good that you have is because of Jesus. Eternal joy, the death of death, eternal life, all of these sorts of things. So you see, in the death of Christ, you see both the most evil act that's ever occurred This is the only person that's truly and perfectly and fully innocent. This is the death of the only person that's perfectly innocent, the most evil act that's ever occurred, and then also the most good act that's ever occurred. And God ordains this to happen. You see that in Acts 2 and Acts 4, which I won't read for the sake of time, but it's very clear that God ordains this to happen, that it happens according to God's will. So God never commands sin according to his moral will, though he does ordain evil and sovereignly rules over uh, evil, but only to, uh, to accomplish ultimate good. That's uh, how God uses evil. Third point, the fact that the Bible records something doesn't mean that God approves of that thing. There's a really lazy, sloppy way to read the Bible that assumes that just because the Bible mentions something, that therefore it's giving approval, and that is not true. In fact, uh, the Bible records a number of things that it doesn't approve of. The Bible records incest and murder and sexual assault and so forth, but that doesn't mean that God condones or approves of those sins. In fact, God never commands someone to rape someone. God never commands someone to murder someone. God never commands uh, committing incest or otherwise sinning. God is sovereign, as we've seen, over the sinful acts of man, but he doesn't command man to sin. Let me give you another example of this, uh, something that scripture records, though God doesn't uh, approve of that thing, and that is polygamy. Uh, Does God approve of polygamy? Now, you might assume that he does, because the Bible never explicitly uh, condemns it, and, uh, and because we see a number of people that practice polygamy in Scripture. In fact, a couple of people that we would say are fairly righteous, 
practice uh, polygamy. But there are actually multiple reasons embedded in scripture to conclude not only that polygamy is wrong today, but even then that God didn't approve of it, that God didn't uh, condone uh, it. So I'm gonna give you four of these reasons. So let this serve as warning to you, lest any of you were planning to move to, to Utah and to get other wives or whatever it might be. So four reasons that we would conclude that polygamy is not uh, 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 righteous today and that it really wasn't righteous even when it was uh, practiced by the patriarchs. Number one, from the beginning, God created marriage as two persons joined in one flesh. You have that all the way back in the opening chapters of, uh, of Genesis, right? And, and in fact, that's where we get our understanding of marriage as an institution. And that's where Jesus always takes people back to. When Jesus is arguing on the topic of marriage, he always goes back to the institution of marriage as one man and one woman joined together in one flesh. And so speaking of Jesus and his views on marriage, I think polygamy is kind of like divorce. Uh, Jesus says that God regulated divorce. Why did he do that? For man's hardness of heart. That's the phrase that is uh, used there. In other words, God legislated or regulated divorce even though he didn't approve of it. He didn't condone of it in most circumstances as being righteous and good. I think the same could be said of polygamy. So that's the first reason uh, is this picture of marriage that you get from Genesis a second reason, think of the requirements of elders and deacons. As you're reading through uh, uh, Titus and 1 Timothy, uh, it says that they must be husband of one wife. What's really interesting about that is that none of the other requirements are, are, are real, like super Christian uh, uh, attributes. They're, they're virtues of general godliness. With the exception of the ability to teach that uh, elders must have, everything else in there is basic faithfulness. Whether you are an elder or a deacon or not, you are called to all of the other attributes that are mentioned there in regards to elders and deacons. You're called to not be a drunkard and not be quarrelsome and, uh, and so forth. And, uh, and so that's the, uh, the second reason is, is whenever it's giving these attributes for elders and deacons, which are uh, attributes that all Christians should aspire to, again, with the exception of the ability to teach, which is a, a unique thing for, uh, for elders, that there is this requirement that they be the husband of one wife. Third, you would notice the results. I think this is an important thing to, to recognize. As you're reading the Old Testament, as you're reading these narratives involving polygamy, is there a single case as you read the Old Testament where it doesn't seem like polygamy, uh, where it seems like polygamy doesn't lead to sin or to strife? Who's the first polygamist that's mentioned in Scripture? Anybody know? It's in Genesis chapter 4. His name is Lamech. And what do we know about Lamech? He brags about murder. So this is not a good guy. Uh, what happens when the patriarchs have multiple wives? When Jacob has multiple wives, does that go really well for him? No. When David has multiple wives, does that go really well for him? What about Solomon? He's got a whole lot. He's like the most polygamist of them all, right? He's got a whole lot. And we're, we're to see there is this constant uh, strife, heartache, enmity, war, murder, all of these sorts of things. And, uh, and so, uh, in addition to that, you have polygamy is actually viewed as part of a curse, uh, in a sense. In the Old Testament, God tells the people, uh, when the people say, I, we want to reject Yahweh as being our king, we want our own king. We want a physical human king. God says, I'll give you what you want, but 
This is the kind of king you're going to get. And he, he, and he mentioned some negative attributes, among them being he's going to multiply horses and wives. And so this multiplication of wives is seen as a negative. It, it's less than uh, ideal. Bottom line, the Bible doesn't always have to explicitly prohibit something. Oftentimes, we are to notice this implicit pattern. If every single time that something is recorded in the Bible, there are these devastating consequences, maybe that's the, way, the author's way of implicitly showing that the thing itself isn't good and righteous. Last reason to conclude polygamy is not uh, correct is the pattern of marriage is a picture of the gospel. You know, Jesus doesn't have more than one bride. He has one, the church. Right? So you individually are not the bride of Christ. We collectively, along with all the saints, are the bride of Christ. You individually are not. You are a member of that uh, body. Jesus has one and only one bride, and that is the church. Any distortion of marriage is, in a sense, a distortion of this image, this image of the gospel. Adultery implies that God cheats on his bride. Premarital sex implies that you can have the benefits of relationship with God without the covenant uh, with uh, God. Likewise, polygamy distorts the image of the gospel as if uh, Jesus himself is an adulterer, as if Jesus himself is unfaithful, as if he himself has multiple brides. So, so does the Bible ever explicitly say in these words, polygamy is sin? No. But it doesn't have to. We've talked about this before. An implicit truth is just as true as an explicit truth. It doesn't have to explicitly say something that is already implicitly said in the text. But my main point here isn't that polygamy is wrong. The main point is that there are many things that the Bible is going to record that God hates. So we can't just say that just because God records it or regulates it or doesn't explicitly condemn it that it's therefore morally good. That's gonna come up as we look at some of these uh, examples later. Last thing, God determines what is and is not evil. Last sort of opening uh, thing that you need to recognize, theological nu uh, nuance, is that God determines what is and is not uh, evil. Uh, imagine, if you will, there is a one-way street, right? You're only allowed to go one particular direction. That's the way that God's commands and, uh, and our understanding of right and wrong go to us. We don't have a, uh, we shouldn't have a presupposed, assumed understanding of what is right and wrong and then enforce that or impose that on scripture. No, instead we look to scripture and right and wrong flow down to us. It's a one way uh, sort of thing. So, the, uh, so we must work to get our morality from scripture rather than imposing our opinions of morality on scripture. Morality flows from scripture to us. It does not go the other way. It does not flow from us to scripture. The reason I say this is because we need to beware of imposing on the text. We talked about this last week uh, quite a bit in regards to presuppositions, right? We all bring presuppositions to the text. Some of those are good, some of those are bad, but all of them we need to be aware of. We need to be aware of them, and some of them, uh, certainly the bad ones, we need to actively work to change to be in more in line with the biblical worldview. Uh, here's why I mentioned that, because if you come to Scripture with this presupposition that homosexuality, for example, is, uh, is acceptable and good, then when you read the Bible and you see that God is going to condemn it as sin, you're going to think what? 
that God is capricious, that God is cruel, that God is unkind, that God, is, God doesn't understand all of the modern advances in our understanding of homosexuality, whatever it is. And, uh, and so if that's your presupposition though, you're going to read that into scripture and it's going to have uh, effects. Or if you assume that all killing in all circumstances is murder, and thus all killing in all circumstances is evil. Well, what's gonna happen when you read the Old Testament and God commands Israel to kill all of her enemies? You're going to assume that God commands what is evil. You're gonna assume that God himself is evil or capricious or cruel or whatever it might be. But the reality from a biblical perspective, from a biblical worldview, is that not all killing is murder. All murder is killing, but not all killing is murder. There are even different words in Hebrew and in Greek to distinguish uh, between killing and murder as there are in, uh, in English. Murder is always wrong. Killing is sometimes right. You have capital punishment in the Bible. You have any time God takes a life, it is inherently right. You have Israel conquering the other nations. We're gonna talk about that here uh, in a second. But the point, as we said last week, is that we all approach the Bible with presuppositions, and then when it doesn't fit our preconceived lenses, oftentimes, if we're not careful, we're going to assume that the problem is with Scripture. But that's kind of like being nearsighted and then thinking that the world around is fuzzy. Is the problem actually the world around you? No. The problem is that you are myopic. You're nearsighted. You're farsighted or whatever it might be. You're the one who needs to have uh, lenses. So in a sense... Uh, you know how people say they have to have their readers on? That's how we should read scripture. We have these readers on. We recognize I have inherent presuppositions. I have inherent assumptions. And those are actually causing me to misread scripture in a number of areas. So I need to read it with my readers uh, on. Uh, unfortunately, even Christians uh, have oftentimes these uh, preconceived sort of assumptions of the text. And so we uh, oftentimes need a stronger uh, prescription. But God determines what is and is not evil. We don't approach scripture assuming something is or is not evil and then therefore go to scripture uh, and find justification for that. No, instead we are to allow scripture to influence us and change our assumptions uh, in regards to what is and is not evil. So if you keep those principles, just those four principles in mind, uh, I think you'll actually be prepared to walk through the, the, the majority of uh, moral objections that people raise against God and scripture. But I wanna talk about a couple of examples from the Bible where people get hung up and assume that God actually does command evil acts, not just according to his hidden sovereign will that he ordains it, but according to his revealed moral will that God commands someone to sin or commands uh, someone to do evil. The first one is the example of Abraham and Isaac. And so the question is asked, how could God command Abraham to sacrifice Isaac? Well, we know according to God's revealed moral will that he hates child sacrifice. There's no question of that as you read uh, the Bible. That's, that's uh, abundantly clear. Leviticus 18.21, you shall not give any of your children to offer them uh, to Moloch and so profane the name uh, of your God, I am the Lord. Deuteronomy 18.10, there shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer. Deuteronomy 12.31, you shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. 
the way of the nations surrounding Israel. For every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. So if God hates child sacrifice, and he does, then how does God command Abraham to sacrifice his child? Well, you might initially think that uh, we would just answer that by saying that God can ordain that which, we ha- which he hates, which we said was true uh, earlier, but that's actually not the best response to this particular question, because then this would be an example where God is commanding by his moral revealed will what he has also prohibited by his moral revealed will. When we talked about God ordaining what he hates, we talked about there's two different types of will. You have God's sovereign will and you have his revealed will. This, though, would be an example where God uh, uh, commands something by his moral will that he also prohibits by his moral will, which would seem to present a contradiction. So that's not the best response. What is? I think the best response to this is just simply recognizing that at no point was there any actual chance of Isaac actually being sacrificed. At no point was there actually any opportunity for, uh, for Isaac to actually be sacrificed. Here's what I mean. When God commands Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, there are only two logical outcomes. What are those two outcomes? Abraham can either what or what? Well, you can sacrifice or not, but even more than that, he can either obey or he can disobey. So let's, uh, let's imagine that Abraham refuses. He doesn't sacrifice Isaac. Is Isaac sacrificed? No. Now let's imagine that Abraham does what he does and he says, I'm gonna go and sacrifice Isaac. What happens? God intervenes. So in that scenario, is Isaac sacrificed? No, so in no scenario, no matter whether or not Abraham actually obeyed or disobeyed, Abraham wasn't, uh, I'm sorry, Isaac wasn't actually uh, sacrificed. So in neither outcome, would uh, Isaac ever have been actually sacrificed or endangered? The command to sacrifice Isaac is not actually about sacrificing Isaac at all, but rather testing Abraham. So there's never any danger of actual sacrifice taking place. So there should be no apologetic concern for us. When we talk about Abraham sacrificing Isaac, we realize he doesn't actually sacrifice him. Emotionally, spiritually, and so forth he does, but physically he never does, and there is no opportunity for him to do so because God is always planning to intervene in that scenario. So that's, uh, that's the first scenario. The next one is a little bit harder, and that is the question, this will be a little bit uh, sensitive if you have uh, kids in the room just because we have to use the word rape, but does God condone of rape or sexual assault? There are obviously a number of instances of, uh, of sexual assault in the Bible, we talked about before, the, the fact that the Bible records something doesn't mean that it approves of it. But if you're on the uh, internet and uh, you read about these sorts of things, you often come across someone who says, well, what about Deuteronomy 22? In Deuteronomy 22, 28 through 29, it seems to say that uh, rape is access- acceptable. It says in Deuteronomy 22, 28 through 29, if a man meets a virgin who is not betrothed, and seizes her and lies with her, and they are found, then the man who lay with her shall give to the father of the young woman 50 shekels of silver, and she shall be his wife because he has violated her. He may not divorce her all his days. So that sounds like it's saying that if a man rapes a woman, that he has to pay some money and then marry her. But is that actually what it's saying? And I would say no, that's not actually what it's saying uh, at all. How do we know? 
Well, the first thing that I would encourage you to do is to look at the context, right? So before you have Deuteronomy 28, 20, uh, 8 through 29, you have Deuteronomy 22, 23 through 27. So let's look at 23 through 27. 23 through 24 says, if there is a betrothed virgin and a man meets her in the city, notice the language of betrothal, how that kind of relates to Deuteronomy 22, 28 through 29. In this case, it's a betrothed virgin and the other one, it's an unbetrothed one. So if there's an, a betrothed virgin, that's betrothed to be married, kind of similar to our engagement uh, process, uh, although a little bit more uh, binding. And a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry for help, though she was in the city, and the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. <clears throat> Verses 25 through 27. But if in the open country... A man meets a young woman who is betrothed and the man seizes her and lies with her. Then only the man who lay with her shall die, but you shall do nothing to the young woman. She has committed no offense punishable by death. For this case is like that of a man attacking and murdering his neighbor because he met her in the open country and though the betrothed woman uh, cried for help, there was no one to rescue her. And then you get to 28 through 29. If a man meets a virgin who is not betrothed and seizes her and lies with her and they are found, the man who lay with her shall give to the father of the young woman 50 shekels of silver and she shall be his wife because he has violated her. He may not divorce her all his days. Okay, so that's the first thing you have to do. You have to look at the context. And as you look at the context, I want you to notice a few things. Notice that he's giving three different scenarios here Three different cases in this passage, and in each case, it's a different scenario and thus a different prescription. The first, in verses 23 through 24, deals with a consensual activity that's considered adulterous because the woman is betrothed, that is, she's legally pledged to be married. It's a consensual activity, and so both of them are to be uh, put to death for this act of, uh, of adultery. The second scenario, in verses 25 through 27, is obviously what we would consider sexual assault or rape. The man is held entirely guilty and the man is to be killed, but the woman is entirely innocent in this case. She's a victim. She cries out for help as a sign that it's not consensual. So that's the second scenario. So it would be really surprising to think that when we get to this third case now, that it's also dealing with assault, which it's just dealt with, since the Lord gives an entirely different prescription in this scenario. So already there are hints in the text that this might not actually be what we think it is, which is sexual assault or rape. In fact, the word for seizes is a different word in verse 28 than it was in verse 25. I put that even in your notes so you could recognize that even if you don't uh, read Hebrew, you notice at least that it's a different word there. The word for seizes is a different word in verse 28 than it was in verse 25. So the type of seizing is different. Neither word is necessarily negative, as we talk about all the time. The meaning of, word, of a word is determined by its context. Uh, but the latter usage often just means to take hold of, as when a uh, warrior takes hold of his uh, sword or his shield, or even the way that a husband and a wife hold each other. You'll see the word, the Hebrew word, used in this particular sense. It's used of God capturing or seizing the hearts of his people, which is not this negative sort of connotation at all. 
And, uh, and so if the man seizing a virgin might not actually imply violence or abuse or assault in any sense. It might be similar to how we would talk about a man holding his lover. As always, again, context is gonna determine the meaning. So the, the fact that the word seizes is different should be helpful. Furthermore, look at the phrase, and they are found. Not just that he is found or that she is found, but that they are found. They're found to be together. Again, there's this implication, uh, perhaps, of consent. So I would say verses 28 through 29 don't appear to deal with sexual assault or rape at all. Instead, it's giving a case where there's this consensual sexual encounter in which the woman is not already betrothed or married. In verses 23 through 24, it gives the case in which someone is betrothed in this case, it's giving the, uh, the example of what happens when the woman is not uh, betrothed. So you have three scenarios in the three passages. In the first scenario, you have adultery. In the second scenario, you have rape. In the third scenario, you have premarital sex. But then you might ask the question, well, why does it say that he violated her? Doesn't that imply sexual assault? No, it doesn't. Notice that the man violated the betrothed woman in verse 24, which is an obviously consensual uh, activity. And so that phrase doesn't necessarily mean any, uh, anything that is sexual assault. Uh, to be violated in that context uh, could be through any sort of consensual activity uh, as well. Bottom line, I think the passage is similar to Exodus 22. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. In other words, I don't think this is condoning or celebrating, or in this case, this passage, I don't think it's even regulating rape, but I think it has nothing to do with sexual assault. Instead, it's dealing with consensual uh, immorality between a man and a woman uh, neither of whom is uh, betrothed, and they engage in uh, premarital sexual activity. So ironically, if you go to Deuteronomy 22, 28 through 29, as evidence that the Bible condones or celebrates rape, uh, then you not only are relying on a passage that isn't about rape at all, but you're also skipping over the context, which clearly condemns rape. Just two verses earlier, you have the clear condemnation that the rapist is to be put uh, to death. So I don't think the Bible in any sense condones or celebrates sexual assault or rape, although it does uh, mention it in a number of places. Next example. This is kind of heavy, heavy stuff. Take a breath for a second. Okay, what are we to make of genocide in the Old Testament, particularly the Canaanite invasion? Well, here's what Richard Dawkins says. This is a, a good quote uh, for you this morning. He says in The God Delusion, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving, control, control freak. If I had trouble with the word freak, I'm gonna have trouble with these other words. A vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, Sadomasochistic, capricious, malevolent bully, Selah. Just <laughs> rest on that for a second. Let's look at the, the, uh, the relevant passage, Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 5, or a relevant passage. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you're entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you, 
And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons, taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their ashram and burn their carved images with fire. So is this genocide? Is this murder? Does God command here what he has already morally prohibited elsewhere? Does God command sin? And so let me give you a few uh, thoughts. Number one, recognize this is for a particular place, uh, for particular people in a particular place at a particular time. So even if we were to conclude this was genocide, which I would say it's not, and we'll make that argument, it still wouldn't justify jihad or crusades or whatever it is today. But for uh, apologetics purposes, I would say that we should recognize that not every single man, woman, and child is killed. That's one of the ways that's often uh, presented uh, by those who are skeptics is the idea that they killed every single man, woman, and child. There are notable exceptions, right? In the, uh, the, sl- uh, the slaughter of Jericho, who survives? Rahab, Rahab, and her entire family. So already we've noticed there is an exception there. As you're reading the Old Testament, you would also maybe recall the story of the Gibeonites, Gibeonites, uh, who are also spared. There's uh, people from other surrounding territories who are also spared. And so many commentators think that this language of complete destruction and every man and every woman and every child was a rhetorical device that's not meant to be taken literally. But regardless, whether or not you take it literally or uh, not, this is not genocide, this is not murder. You need to understand from a biblical worldview, this is capital punishment. As we said before, not every killing is murder. Every murder is killing, but not every killing is murder. At the root of this critique of the Canaanite uh, conquest is the veiled assumption that these are innocent people that are being killed. But that's not a biblical concept. That's not what we see in scripture. If you grasp this one thing, the objection is almost completely negated. The reason we have such emotional distress when we read this account is owing to our own theological confusion regarding the moral culpability of the Canaanites. In reality, these are not good people. In fact, I would say no one's a good person, but that's not even my point here. Instead, these particular people are particularly evil. They're idolaters. They're blasphemers, they're murderers, they're child sacrificers. They're not poor, innocent victims of a mean God. They're cruel and rebellious traitors. In Deuteronomy 9, four through six, God says, it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Deuteronomy 12, 31, we read it before, it talks about how the nations surrounding them were guilty of child sacrifice. So why were they destroyed? Because of their wickedness. This is not murder. Again, this is more like capital punishment. So the, the objection at the end of the day is really to the idea, people object to the idea that God has the right to judge and punish the wicked. That's what it really boils down to. If you really believe that these people were wicked, if you really believe that God has the right to punish the wicked, then the conquest of Canaan is gonna make much more sense because God often uses human instruments to accomplish his judgment. Sometimes it's righteous men like, uh, like David conquering his enemies. 
Sometimes that's kind of good, kind of iffy men like Samson. Sometimes it's really bad men like the Assyrians or the Babylonians, but God often uses human instruments to accomplish his judgment. That said, the timing of God's justice is not like ours. Uh, If anything, I think that we should read this account and we should marvel at God's mercy and patience. 400 years before the conquest of Canaan, God had said this to Abraham, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. In other words, he waited to judge them. He waited 400 years to judge them. Way back in Abraham's day, God is already displeased with these nations and yet he waits, he relents, he is merciful and patience. And then we complain when he finally judges the people that he has already been patient towards. The amazing thing about this account isn't God's judgment as much as it is his mercy. But of course, if you think that the Canaanites don't deserve judgment, then obviously you will have problems with God's judgment. But then you haven't actually proven that God is capricious or proven that God is cruel. You've simply proven that you yourself don't think that God is worthy of uh, the title of judge. Next example, last one. Why does the Bible condone slavery? Why does the Bible condone slavery? A few things to keep in mind. The first one, we need to remember that regulation of something doesn't necessarily imply approval of that thing. For instance, we, we mentioned this before, divorce is, is legislated, but Christ says that it was nonetheless contrary to God's will. So even though slavery is regulated, that doesn't mean that it was good. That's a presupposition that would need to be examined. Also notice that God doesn't command slavery. Asking why doesn't the Bible condemn slavery is a valid question. Asking why God commands slavery is not a helpful question because it's a trick question. God doesn't command slavery. So let's dismiss the second question, but answer the first. Why doesn't God condemn slavery? In order to answer that, we need to really define our terms. What do we mean by slavery? When you think of slavery, what do you tend to think of? If I use the word slavery, what do you think of? Racism, yeah. What particular forms of slavery do you think of? What time period? The Civil War. You think of 19th century uh, antebellum slavery, or you think of the modern sex trade, right? Uh, most of us, when we think of slavery, we think of one of those particular uh, images. Neither of those bear much resemblance to the way that the Bible is using the term slavery. In fact, uh, a lot of translations have moved away from using the language of slavery because this word is so associated with things that aren't actually related to the ancient practice of uh, slavery. We imply all kinds of associations that aren't actually uh, accurate. And, uh, and so the slavery in the Bible was a very different institution than modern slavery. It generally wasn't ethnic. It generally wasn't race-based. Education of slaves was generally encouraged. Slavery was not the bottom rung of the social ladder. Many poor people sold themselves into slavery in order to move up the social ladder. Slaves could generally own property, including the funds to purchase their own freedom. A large percentage of slaves could anticipate being manumitted that's set free by the age of 30. Ex-slaves often became citizens, some even rising to govern. When you read in the book of Acts about a guy named Marcus Antonius Felix, he was a slave until he was eventually freed 
by the, uh, the emperor Claudius's mother, and he uh, eventually rose to the position of Roman governor. So the, the institution of slavery is very different than the, we, uh, the way that we tend to think of that word. In fact, every form of modern slavery that we would think of is explicitly condemned in scripture. Look at Exodus 21, 16. Whoever steals a man and sells him, there goes the entire African slave trade. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Deuteronomy 24, seven. If a man is found stealing one of his brothers, the people of Israel, and if he treats him as a slave or sells him, then that thief shall die. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. First Timothy 1, 10 mentions enslavers, literally man stealers. Deuteronomy 23, 15, you shall not give up his master, give up to his master a slave who has escaped from his master to you, right? That's the exact opposite of the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, which required that you would return a slave. So every form of modern slavery that we tend to think of is explicitly condemned in scripture. Every single abuse that we tend to consider associated with modern slavery is explicitly condemned in scripture. Masters are said not to threaten. They're told to treat their, their, their slaves or bond servants justly and fairly. All of the other commandments that scripture gives and regarding love and grace and kindness and patience and mercy and all of these things would also apply to masters. So the, so the Bible regulates slavery. It demands justice and kindness. It even has principles that would eventually lead for Christians to overturn many forms of slavery throughout uh, history, like William Wilberforce in, uh, in England. But it itself wasn't entirely and universally condemned. Slavery itself wasn't universally and entirely condemned. So why not? There are two reasons. One is kind of conceptual and the other is contextual. Conceptually, and I realized here that Tim is probably gonna pull this audio and make it sound like I'm saying slavery is good. I'm not saying that, but I'm just gonna have to say what I have to say and he can do whatever he wants with the audio. But the point is that slavery can be a helpful picture. Slavery, again, modern slavery, completely bad, completely evil, but slavery itself as a concept can be a helpful picture. We're all slaves in a sense. We're slaves to Satan, we're slaves to the flesh, we're slaves to ourself, or we're slaves to whom? To Christ, right? So slavery as a concept is neither inherently evil or good. It depends on who the master is and how he treats his slaves. So the Bible doesn't condemn the concept of slavery because slavery in and of itself is not necessarily sinful. 19th century race-based slavery is evil. The modern sex trade is evil. Other types are evil, but slavery as a concept is not always evil. It depends on the type and the actions of the master and so forth. By the, by the way, as an aside, this is why it's so crazy in, in our culture today that we would just cancel historical figures simply because they own slaves. For instance, uh, I've read a lot about Jonathan Edwards and how we should not pay any attention to him whatsoever because he owned at least one slave. Does that mean that we shouldn't read him? No, it doesn't necessarily even mean that he sin. Biblically, it would depend on a number of factors, including how he treated his slaves. A few facts about Edwards you may or may not know that he later wrote against the cruelty of the slave trade. He argued for the spiritual equality of the races. He admitted um, blacks into membership of his Northampton congregation, including his own slave, 
uh, Leah in a time where his was the only church to admit slaves into membership. Towards the end of his life, he served as a missionary to Native Americans. In addition, we should bear in mind, Edwards died more than 100 years before the beginning of the Civil War. And that he lived in the north in Connecticut where slavery was pretty different from what would be practiced two generations later in the south. Does that excuse Edwards? Is that my point? No, not necessarily. But it does give a reason to pause before we just simply assume that he was a racist bigot. The greatest theological mind to ever come out of uh, North America. Um, So the question is not, was the slave trade uh, wicked or evil? Of course. Were there wicked slave owners? Absolutely, but everyone agrees on those things. The question is whether Jonathan Edwards violated scripture simply by owning a slave, and we would need a lot more historical evidence uh, for that. The reason I mention this is because of the danger of implicitly rejecting the sufficiency of goodness of scripture and the logical implication of throwing him under the bus. Here's what I mean. If you're embarrassed by the fact that Edwards owned slaves, regardless of how he treated them, regardless of the context, regardless of other information, then you're probably implicitly embarrassed that Abraham, the father, uh, the father of Israel, that he owned slaves. You're probably implicitly uh, embarrassed by the fact that God doesn't universally condemn slavery. And you're ultimately probably embarrassed by God himself. This is the danger here. So was Edwards in the wrong? Maybe. I don't know, I don't know all of the evidence. I'm not sure if we have enough historical evidence to say uh, confidently, but uh, we probably shouldn't throw him out unless we're also prepared to throw out the Psalms because of David's flaws or throw out uh, reformed theology because of Luther or Calvin's uh, flaws. So rant about that over. Back to New Testament slavery. The second reason, we talked about a little bit of the, the concept of slavery. The second reason that Paul doesn't simply command all Christians to free their slaves is contextual. On the surface, that seems to be the most loving and kind thing to do. Just simply, Paul, just command all masters to free their slaves. That seems to be the most loving, the most kind thing. That's not actually the most loving and most kind thing if you actually understand the context. Those who criticize Paul or God or the Bible for not universally commanding masters to release their slaves demonstrate a profound historical ignorance. Here's a few things that you should know regarding Roman slavery. First, that slaves who were freed under the age of 30 years old, you had a 28-year-old slave and you freed them, they would never be granted citizenship. No matter what they did, they could not be granted Roman citizenship. And they could only be freed by a formal legal process. So you couldn't just simply stand up and say, I free you. You couldn't just simply write them a document that says, I free you. There's a formal legal process that uh, is written out for them. And, uh, and once you did, if they were younger than 30, they could never become citizens. There were also limits to the number of slaves that one could free. If you had three slaves, you could only free two. If you had between four and 10, you could only free up to half of them. If you had between 11 and 30, you could only free a third of them and so forth. This means that had Paul commanded masters to free all their slaves, they could only do so by breaking the law and notice this, by making their freed slaves vulnerable from a social and economic perspective. Had they freed a young slave, let's say he's 20 years old for instance, this person would have lacked citizenship, They would have lacked certain legal protections and privileges. 
They would have been susceptible to being enslaved by another, perhaps harsher master. So it seems kind, it seems compassionate, but it actually isn't. The end result is actually worse for that servant, for that slave. They don't have any food, they don't have any shelter, they don't have any money, they don't have a job, they don't have citizenship, thus they're in greater danger of being abused and exploited. So the solution actually ends up worse for the person. You feel better about yourself, I released my slave. But it actually would have been worse in that context. What would have been better would have been to wait until they're a certain age to go through the legal process and then to prepare them uh, by paying them and so forth and then eventually releasing them. One of the most helpful things for, for you to do in understanding other, uh, history, uh, other historical periods, other cultures, is to put yourself in the shoes of one of those people. Imagine that you're a first century Roman citizen. You own 30 slaves and you come to faith. As a result that you know you're to be kind, you're to be compassionate, you're to be gracious, you're to be generous to your slaves, but should you free them I think that's an important question for you to wrestle through. If you free all of them, you're in violation of Roman law. And not only that, they're not legally then uh, free. You can say, I free you, but because you're not allowed to legally free them, they would just be further enslaved. So you can't free all of them. You can free 10 of your 30 slaves. So uh, which 20 should you keep? How would you make that decision? Or assuming you defy the law, you free them all, doing so might make your slaves subject to the danger of being enslaved to a non-believing, unjust master, thus end up a thousand times worse for them. So do do you do what makes you feel better, or do you do what's actually better for someone that you're supposed to care about? While we could argue the ethics of the situation, you might come to a different conclusion Certainly there's enough here that you could begin to recognize uh, why this is a little bit more complex than just saying God should have universally commanded masters to free all of their slaves. So is modern slavery evil? Yes. Were some ancient slave owners evil? Yes. But are there good and godly reasons for the Bible itself to not immediately and universally command masters to release their slaves? The answer is also yes. Have some used the Bible to support unjust and wicked forms of evil? Yes, they did that here in America. Were those who used the Bible to support race-based American slavery wrong? Yes, but is all slavery in all times and in all ways always evil? The answer is no. Should we dismiss everyone in the past who owned slaves simply because they owned slaves without any evidence as to what they did? And the answer is, of course not. So these are just four principles to keep in mind, four specific objections, hopefully just a shallow dive into uh, each of these uh, and the various sort of claims of of skeptics uh, is helpful uh, because all of these things are kind of like mildew or mold. The more that you just kind of allow them just to kind of fester in the darkness of the internet, uh, the more that they're going to take on these properties that are going to seem like they're a much bigger problem when the, than when you actually just drag them into the light and, uh, and examine them. And so at the end of the day, my concern is that you would bask in the glory and the beauty and the inerrancy and the authority and the sufficiency of Scripture. From the conquest of Canaan to the institution of slavery or polygamy or whatever it, uh, else it might be, there's nothing in Scripture that we should be afraid of. There's nothing in scripture that we should be embarrassed by. God is good and so his word is good. 
And where it appears bad or blurry, and there are a number of places, it still appears blurry. There are things I don't understand, but I recognize the problem lies in my own heart and my own mind and not in Scripture. So let's pray for continued clarity, and then we'll do some Q&A. Father, I, uh, I confess there are things in your word, even as uh, Peter says uh, of uh, Paul's writings, there are things in your word that are difficult and hard to understand, which the ignorant twist. And so uh, even as we uh, claim that we don't know everything and we need eyes to see and ears to hear, that we don't wanna be those who twist your word. We don't wanna be embarrassed by your word. We don't wanna be ashamed of your word, and so I pray that you'd help us to think more biblically about these things so that we would recognize that you are always and only good and that you do good. And so uh, I pray that uh, you would help us. Uh, we pray these things in Christ's name, amen.